manners. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. So, Adam, we learned quite a lot from the News Hub debate the other night, didn't we? Sure did. Some interesting policy delineation at last. True, but we also learned Jacinda Ardern doesn't call Judith Collins crusher, even in private. She kind of muttered something about how she might use some other words, mind. And we learned what Judith Collins calls Jacinda Ardern. Miss Ardern? Yeah, that too, but I was thinking of... What for, dear? No mai haere mai ki Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast mō te rāhuroi whiringa a nuku toru. Ko Adam Darling tēnei. Ko Eugene Bingham tēnei. Tēnā koutou katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular korero. There are 14 days till the election. 14 days. Lordy, it's almost upon us. And the past seven days have been pretty interesting. Serious fraud office charges over the New Zealand First Foundation. Another leaders debate. Quite a good one. Threats against Nikki Hager's life. Some more policy rollouts. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Is it really a death threat when you point out that everyone will have to meet their maker one day? Unkind, unpleasant, but a death threat? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, policy rollouts. Billy Takahika getting told off by police and not covering the right parts of his face with a mask. Nose and mouth, everybody, just if you're wondering. Jacinda Ardern admitting to having taken a tote back in the day. Insights into the meat-eating habits of her and of Collins. Photos of Todd Muller playing Patonk. What? Yeah, Patonk. It's a game, rather like bowls, only with a French accent. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, never mind, never mind. Anyway, in the spirit of the increasingly hectic election news cycle, I say we need to get on with the show. We've got a flaming wheel to spin and a really interesting interview with the National Party pollster David Farrar to playback and music. Okay, so we need to clarify something. What's that? There was a bit of confusion about the flaming wheel of policy last week. Although we said it was like a quick-fire raffle, you can't actually buy any tickets. So, look, all it is really is a cheap gimmick with a hastily recorded sound effect so we can talk about policy without being totally boring. Adam, you're not supposed to draw back the curtain like that. Oh, oh well, too late now. So, um, Eugene, step over to the wheel, if you will, and I'll get the flamethrower going and uh, let's just spin the flaming wheel of policy. Why not? Okay. Uh, uh, No, it's health. Okay. Health. Let's start with the biggest party in parliament at the moment, national. Sure. And it's fair to say the party has a comprehensive set of policies with some quite specific promises in this area. In total, it says the initiatives are going to cost $800 million over four years. It's an area where their lead spokesperson, Dr Shane Retty, has gained respect and attention, remember. Some of the headline policies are their mental health policy released this week, which includes a new Minister for Mental Health. There's some other areas, like a big focus on cancer. It wants to create a national cancer agency and set up a $200 million fund for Pharmac. That's to fund cancer drug purchases. And it has a $20 million fund to fight gynecological cancer. And then, of course, there was the dental policy with the toothbrush promise. Who could forget? All right, what about Labour? Yeah, funnily enough, Labour has a dental policy too. Basically, they want to pay for more targeted dental care so that people at low incomes can get their teeth looked after. But mostly, it's campaigning on its record, really. It's it's saying, look, we've got these measures that are already in place, such as the investment in DHB funding, the boosting of funding for Pharmac. 
Of course, Labour had the misfortune this term of losing its health minister during the COVID crisis, Dr David Clark. Not a medical doctor. That's right. Wasn't it theology or something? Anyway, they do have Dr Aisha Verrill coming in high on the list, so it's going to be interesting to see what part she plays in the party. But we're getting off track. It's supposed to be at policies. Right. When we go to the website, yeah, it's sort of, here's what we achieved already and we've promised already, rolling out mental health services like PICI, which provides free mental health uh, and well-being support, re-establishing the Mental Health Commission, pay increases for health workers, launching a new cancer action plan. But in terms of new policies? Well, they promised millions more for Pharmac, cutting the number of DHBs and the creation of a Māori health authority. All right, so ACT is roaring up the polls. What have they got on offer health-wise? Okay, right. There's a big focus on mental health with the creation of a separate standalone mental health and addiction agency. Now, you might say, ACT creating more bureaucracy? Well, under this scheme, people would be able to choose between a range of providers rather than lining up at their local DHB. So it's kind of act styles bureaucracy. They also want to slash the number of DHBs from 20 to 6. And ACT also has the interesting idea of mimicking Taiwan's Central Epidemic Command Centre to fight COVID. Oh, all right. Greens. Look, the Greens party is full of policy. And there is page after page of it on the website. But it sort of boils down to some basics. Number one, everyone has a right to healthcare services, so that's sort of making dental care free for a wider range of people and government funding of inpatient and mental health services, those sorts of things. Children's healthcare should be free, that's their number two sort of priority. Under 18s to go to the GP for free, putting a nurse in every low decile school, that sort of stuff. Number three, health isn't just about healthcare services, so that's sort of shoehorning other policy areas into health, so things like warm homes. Is that cheating? Well... They'd argue that all those things are sort of tied together. All right, I'll allow it. There's uh, maternity care should provide women with choice and quality options. So that's focusing on things like improvements in postnatal care and boosting plunket line, that kind of stuff. All right, Māori Party. Yeah, when you look at their website, things get pretty blunt pretty quickly. Their policy statement starts out as, the inconvenient truth is that the health system fails Māori. And it's pretty hard to argue with that. Actually, I'm going to say it's impossible. Right, so what does the Māori Party propose should be done about that? Yeah, pretty straightforward. Establish a Māori Health Funding Authority, which would be in charge of 20% of the overall health budget. Issue a Māori health card, which they'd issue to all Māori and link funding of them to their people directly rather than via a DHB. They want to establish a Kupapa Māori Mental Health Service, which again would carve out money from the mainstream funding of mental health and addiction services to focus directly on Māori. Another big one, and this is really interesting, is shifting cancer screening of Māori so it starts 10 years earlier. That is, if you're Māori, you get screening for cancers 10 years earlier than you might otherwise. Huh, certainly some bold ideas there. What about New Zealand First? Okay, they too are promising a shake-up of pharmac and funding of particular medicines, expanding of free dental care, slashing the number of DHBs, a couple of unusual ones, if that's a word, eye tests for year five and six kids, and full funding of St John's. Which, it does always seem weird that ambulance services aren't fully state-funded, I've got to say. What else? Other parties? Let's see. New Conservatives, they want to establish a ministry for men. At last, someone who will look out for my needs as a middle-class, middle-aged white dude. Mm. They also want to make private health insurance tax deductible and create incentives for health workers to move to rural areas. Next, TOP. 
top the Opportunities Party. They're all about the policy, aren't they? Yeah. And look, the guts of theirs is, okay, health costs are going up and up and up. We can't afford to keep doing this. We need to rethink things. What about refocusing on prevention? And then they talk about things like strengthening public health, taxing sugar and junk foods, making fruit and veggies more accessible, things like that. So like an ambulance at the top of the cliff, Full of mandarins and apples and bananas. <laughs> yeah, something like that, I suppose. So I'm not quite sure what that means for the New Zealand First funding of St. John's, but you know, I'm sort of conflating policy ideas here. Anyway, so that's it. That was fun. I'd really love to spin the flaming wheel again, but I think that the flamethrower has run out of butane and the bearings on the wheel need greasing, so I think that's all the policy for today. Don't worry, we've still got two weeks left. Okay, politics playlist. This is our very occasional series where we usually highlight songs from campaigns past, but we've actually got a fresh one this week. And it's a doozy. Yeah, so the origin of the politics playlist dates back to when Tick Tick was still the Coronavirus NZ podcast, and we had a pretty regular plague playlist. And very quickly, we found a favourite plague playlister. We sure did. Jack Buchanan, a Kiwi who made beautifully quirky and catchy songs and videos with a COVID theme. Yeah, and now he's only gone and created an election song and it's got a great title, Two Ticks, which, when you think about it, is kind of the name of this show. Mixed member proportional MMP It's the system that we use in our democracy But So this isn't just a catchy song, it's also an extraordinarily detailed explanation of the New Zealand voting system. When you go to the polls on election day There are two different decisions that you gotta make you Another gotta Buchanan banger. Side note, it's kind of interesting to see our two worlds collide in a way. Our love of Jack Buchanan, our futile quest to get the orange guy on the show, and now they come together. What do you mean? When you get to the end of the song, there's a little logo revealing that it was commissioned by the Electoral Commission, which is basically the orange guy. No, 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 say it ain't so. Are you saying it's an ad? What happened to artistic freedom? Man's got to eat, Jack's got to eat, and it's arguably more public service music than an ad. But anyway, it's still catchy. Sure, but I just feel a little crestfallen. Next thing you'll tell me my all-time favourite song from our Plague playlist was commissioned by the NHS. Which one would that be? Thank you, Big Potato. Okay, on with the show. Poles. They're like buses. You wait for ages, and there are none, and then they all come along at once. And that's because the media organisations who used to commission loads of political polls are basically skint these days. So there have been way fewer than usual for an election year. But now, in the closing weeks, they're queuing up at the bus stop. In one recent seven-day stretch, we had a couple of major Colmar TVNZs and a Reed News Hub. Plus, in the last little while, there have been some smaller electorate polls, Auckland Central, Northland. And if that's not enough for you, you could even join the fun by posting one of those little Twitter polls of your own, which have zero statistical value whatsoever, but are kind of entertaining, especially if you're wondering whether more people take the tea bag out before putting in the milk or after putting in the milk. Adam, those aren't really political polls. No, you're right. I still like them, though. But where was I? Right. Today's feature interview is all about polls, the proper, statistically legit ones. And it's with this guy. David Farah, I'm the owner and director of Career Market Research and one of our more prominent clients is the National Party who we do the internal polling for. So yeah, David Farah's run a poll or two over the years and he's got a good handle on what they can tell us, what they can't tell us and the ways that they not only measure voter intentions but they also directly affect voter intentions. But before we get to the nitty gritty of tactical voting, we wanted to, as usual, start at the very beginning. Quick history lesson. Do you happen to know when the first ever political poll might have been taken? 
It was Gallup, and I think it was it's either 30s or 40s, I believe. Right. Wow. And this is in the US, I'm guessing. It is in the United States. There was actually polls earlier than that, but they weren't what we call polls. It was actually magazines used to do surveys of their readers and publish them. And right. we may all know of the famous Dewey versus Truman election in the United States where the polls were wrong. Well, there was an earlier one of that back, I think, in the 20s where there was a magazine did a poll and proclaimed uh, the loser of the election was definitely going to win. But it turned out that their magazine readers weren't particularly hmm. representative of the electorate. Right. Okay. So statistics developed and we got slightly more accurate polls. Still in history mode, can you give us a couple of polling greatest hits? So polls that led to especially dramatic or important consequences? Well, yeah, polls definitely have consequences. And look, I think it's the most recent one uh, would be Simon Bridges, where I think it's no secret that it was the public polling that came out, um, especially having two polls in the one week uh, showing National Down that really led to his leadership being challenged successfully by Todd Muller. There's also, I mean, when Jacinda became leader of the Labour Party, I think people didn't need the polls to say this was a good move. But again, you had the polls come out saying that they've had, had a big boost. Probably the better example, though, because the Jacinda one was obvious, was Don Brash in 2003. He did not require us all to learn to Rio. He came in, national were at 26%, I think, 28 percent and he did his Oriwa speech. Does not give Maori a power of veto. Now people forget this, but it's not that at the time everyone reported this non-stop and thought, wow, this is turning things around. People were gobsmacked when there was polls around two, three weeks later and National had gone from 28 to, I think, 43%, the biggest increase ever. And that totally changed, I think, the political dynamics for some years. Huh. Zooming out even further back to your near encyclopedic knowledge of American politics and other jurisdictions, can you think of a, another time where a poll really blew things up? Well, I, I referred earlier to the Dewey versus Truman election where the polls all showed that Dewey, who no one's probably heard of today, was going to win. And in fact, the New York Times, I believe it was, famously ran the headline, Dewey wins, and Truman mm. took great delight in waving it about the next day. Trump and the polls is quite interesting too because he proves both the polls can be right and wrong. What I mean by that is when he entered the Republican race, he actually was the highest polling candidate early on. But all the pundits, including myself, said there's no way he can win. Yes, he might be there, but we all had theories that the others will coalesce against him, he was unelectable, etc. But actually, the polls were right in the primaries. The guy who was polling the top came through. But then conversely, the other way happened that the general election, the polls showed him behind, uh, and he actually came through and won. Mm. On Trump and Brexit too, can we trust polls anymore when you get results like that? Um, I think you can because with both of them, the polling error is a lot less than uh, what people imagine it is. The first thing to understand with the US election is the Electoral College makes a 1% or 2% difference in the polls. Massive. In New Zealand with MMP, if the polls are out by 1%, then you get one more seat for that party. 
in first-past-the-post type elections, a 1% difference could be 10, 20, 30 seats or electoral college votes. Now, the nationwide polls were actually very accurate for the election. They had, I think, Hillary Clinton ahead by 3.5%. Her final count was 2%. Where they got wrong were some state polls. But, you know, pollsters aren't stupid. They learn from their mistakes. They may find new mistakes to make every time, but the mistake they made in the Wisconsin-type states is they didn't account for that college education was now a massive factor between Trump voters and non-Trump voters and they didn't make sure they had enough non-college whites Mm. in their poll sample. The Brexit referendum, actually all the polls were always showing it pretty close, you know, 48-49%. What you get is that polls tell you what people tell them. But what they don't always cover too well is turnout. If one side is better motivated and turn out to the polls more than their share of the population, you don't always capture that. I think that's what happened with Brexit, that those wanting to leave were more motivated. Right. What are the things that have evolved and that you've learned in the New Zealand context to make polls more accurate? Well, another UK miss, I think we could call it, was two UK elections ago where Jeremy Corbyn did much better than expected. Theresa May called the snap election, thought she was going to get a majority, but ended up as a minority. And the big thing that happened in the UK was that there was a youth quake. Hundreds of thousands, millions of young people enrolled for the first time because Corbyn spoke to them. And Trump in a different way, has that effect too. And what the polls in the UK didn't do was account for that the voting electorate from the last few elections was no longer the same voting electorate. So we had our election, I think, two, three months after that. I remember having Mm. Stephen Joyce on the phone to me every week asking, is there a youth quake? And I was checking the enrolment data because... If there was, I would change my waiting model to reflect more young people. So there's one example. In the US, they've learned that you now wait by college education. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if we just carry on that big picture idea, and maybe can you just tell us what really is the point of polls? Why are they important? Well, they reflect what the public opinion is at any point in time. Of course, we take more than a snapshot because we then use them to project an election. And often it's the projection that is more wrong. But most market research, because polls are a form of market research, aren't actually just about who are you going to vote for. That's what gets people interested. But it's also asking what do they think on issues? Do you want the government to do this? Do you think we should take in more refugees? Do you support euthanasia, etc. And outside there, it's often asking, you know, do you like this company? Do you prefer product A to product B? So it's actually good to know what the public think. And Mm. I'm a bit biased, but I actually think it's a good part of democracy that politicians can understand what the public opinion is and if need be, change policies to reflect public opinion because that's not necessarily a bad thing. Not to argue that they should only reflect public opinion you want principles and convictions, but not everything in politics is a life or death issue for a party. So it's not a bad thing for them to be able to find out, you know, well, actually, look, we're offside on this time to listen. Sure. I guess, though, in an an election campaign, uh, when it's so close to the ultimate poll, what is the point of them? 
Well, Winston always says you should ban polls during election campaigns. I've told you for so long and proved that your polls are rubbish, but if you want to go on making yourself look stupid, that's your problem. And I'm a bit of a libertarian. I don't believe in banning anything. And if I did, though, there is a bit of a case to be made for banning public polls during a campaign because... They are strongly a self-fulfilling prophecy. You get a good poll, then all the stories the next day are about the poll. I actually thought it's not good that TVNZ releases their poll an hour before the debate because the debate then isn't about policy. It's about leaders explaining their poll ratings. But in the end, though, the public do have a right to know about what the rest of the community is thinking, about who's doing well, and it can also help with voting. In a coarse sense, some people don't want to vote for a loser. So if they see a party doing badly, they might say, well, if everyone else thinks they're no good, maybe I should change. But it may also help with, under MMP, of course, we have tactical voting. Mm. That party's doing okay, I might vote for another party. And we want to come to tactical voting in a way, but can we just stick with the, the who, who benefits from a poll, apart from the party that's doing well in a poll, and I guess the polling company? Well, I think you can argue the public benefit because we do want informed decisions. Um, An example, if a party's not likely to make 5%, then public polls help you to avoid what you call wasting your vote. Sure, if you're totally dedicated to that party and you don't care about having your vote count for who gets into parliament, you won't change. But if you're tossing up between two parties and you see that one of them's unlikely to make it, a poll can be very useful to helping you make an informed decision. And again, the horse race polls aren't of direct benefit to the public per se, but some of the policy and issue questions that come out of them I think can be useful too. Right, so reading that minutiae. So you mentioned public polls, and of course there are other polls going on, some of which your company does. So what are some of those other polls that go on that the public wouldn't necessarily know about, and what are they for? Well, those ones partly track public opinion. Of course, politicians want to know who are you going to vote for, but they tend to be far, far more than that. They're to help guide internal decision-making. It can be things like what are the areas that the public think we're good on and what are the areas they think we're bad on? And then that can help a party make a decision which may be, well, they think we're good on these areas, let's keep hammering on those areas because that's where they agree with us and we'll win the election. Or you might make a decision, they think we're bad on these areas, we think we can change their mind, we need to change their mind, so we're going to talk more about these areas where they don't think we're doing so well. Certainly in government too, it's a very important feedback loop to the government. If the public think you're not handling the education system well or not handling the the health system well, it's actually good for a government, I think, uh, to know that because they can think, well, do we need to change policies or the minister or how we communicate about it? Right. Are there dangers that if a government gets too focused on its uh, polls of that kind that you're veering towards government by referendum, that you're asking the public too often and instead of leading, you're just kind of following the mob? Is that a legitimate concern? It is. It comes down to the quality of the party leaders and the government. Done well, it's 
a data input as something that's useful that can help decision making, but shouldn't by itself drive decision making. I'm only a bit biased, but yeah, I worked with him for a long time. But I thought John Key was the master of how to use poll data well. He was a data sponge. You know, his job as a currency trader before that is quite similar. He would soak up data, not just from the polling, but talking to people in the business community, to bank economists, to all sorts, and use that to help guide decision-making. He wouldn't always run with what the popular option was. He wouldn't have done the flag referendum if that was the case. He did the partial asset sales where our polling showed overwhelmingly people were against the government on that, but he thought, I think I've got enough goodwill banked up on other issues that I can actually afford to not have the public with me on this one because, you know, I believe it's important. So good leaders will use it as a source of information, but not as a sole binary yes, no. So weeks out from an election, just like the one we're in right now, you're saying that people want to back a winner, but also they might want to vote tactically. First definition, what is tactical voting? I think tactical voting is when you consider voting for a candidate or a party that wouldn't be your first choice normally, but you think it will achieve a better outcome. Right. And is tactical voting more or less of a significant thing under MMP compared to the old days of first past the post? I think it's definitely more because under first past the post, it was a series of 99 binary elections. Each electorate, you can vote for a national candidate or a Labour candidate, yeah, like occasionally social credit, etc. Hmm. But under MMP, you get tactical voting in two ways. It's all around the threshold. If a party can make 5%, that's important, so you might tactically vote to get them over 5%. Or if they win an electorate, then they don't need the 5%. And we've seen this a number of times where people have voted for a minor party candidate to get them into parliament, and that way the rest of the party vote for that party is not wasted. Mm. So let, let, let's step through some of those scenarios for tactical voting. And the most obvious one, of course, is Epsom with, with the National Party and, and ACT. Can, can you remind us of how that came about in the first place? So I imagine it was quite a tough sell to start with. What people forget, actually, is that when Epsom first went to ACT, National, they actually fought against mm. an endorsement of Rodney Hyde. Um, they, R- Richard Worth was the... Yes, it mm. was Richard Worth. But the thing is, parties don't control their voters. And there were enough voters out there, and the same sort of happened in 1996 with Wellington Central and Preble, where there were enough voters who just worked out, well, actually, this makes sense. You know, we can't govern without ACT. This is a seat where they could do well. We quite like Rodney. So... People did it themselves. The time after that, the party endorsed tactical voting and Rodney won again. The third time, because I did a polling around this, Rodney would have won without National's endorsement. 
he had done a good enough job as the local MP that it was no longer a tactical vote. It was, we think he's a really good local MP. And I would argue David Seymour's now in the same position. In 2014 and 17, it was definitely tactical voting. But in 2020, his approval rating, uh, his performance as the local MP in Epson is high enough that even if National came out and said, we want this seat and threw everything at it, mm. I believe he would still win that seat quite easily. So tactical voting gets you the seat, but doesn't necessarily keep you the seat forever. So what what are the scenarios that are unfolding at this election, do you think? Well, I don't think there's a lot of tactical voting on the electorate side. The two electorates where potentially there would be an Auckland Central where Chloe Swarbrick and, of course, Shane Jones in Northland. We've had a public poll in Northland which showed Shane Jones in third place and very distant third, like under 20% there. You know, their argument and hope is that as it doesn't look likely National will win, National voters will think, well, having New Zealand first there would be better than a Labour-Green government. So if we vote for Shane Jones, he'll get some New Zealand first MPs in. Problem is, the polls show that even if New Zealand first is there, they still won't stop a Labour-Green government. So mm. that's why I don't think it's going to work for them there. Auckland Central's more interesting. Again, we've had a public poll showing Chloe in third place, but quite a bit closer. And... The Greens are polling generally over 5%, so people will think they, they probably don't need Chloe to win, but also Labour is campaigning quite hard for people not to tactically vote. They want that seat back. You cannot rule out, though, look, if polls came out in the next two weeks, which showed Labour down 3 4% in the polls and the Greens at dead on 5%, could you have a last-minute tactical surge to Chloe? Yes, but if Labour's looking like it's fine anyway, then I don't think tactical voting's going to come through there. So just to step out the mechanics there, you have somebody who is left-leaning and wants to see a Labour government, but will be happy enough with the Labour-Greens government, and so they switch their vote from the Labour candidate to the Green candidate, Chloe Swarbrick, and that means that she gets in and hauling the rest of the Greens in with her. That's right, which is only an issue if the Greens look like they might not make 5%. If they're over 5%, they don't need Auckland Central. But, you know, again, um, Labour's held that seat for 90 years before Nikki Kay. They're pretty keen to get hold of it. I think the more likely tactical voting around the Greens is on the party vote. I think if you saw public polls in the last week or so that showed the Greens just under 5%, that's when you might get some Labour voters say, look, I don't want to take the risk, they're not there, I'll swap to the Greens. I think the party vote's more likely to have some tactical voting than um, Auckland Central itself. Is there a scenario in which more centre-right voters see the Greens high in the polls, think National's not look, looking like getting in, so they vote Labour in the hope of heading off the Greens? Does that does that make any sense? Do you see any scenario that that's going to happen? It does make sense, but it's still unlikely because voters don't tend to be quite that sort of cunning in terms of second, third degree <laughs> effects. Um, yeah, this morning I spoke to some CEOs and one of them gave exactly that scenario, should national voters vote Labour so they can form a majority government without the Greens. It's a pretty risky thing to do because you don't know exactly, 
where they're going to end up. I think Labor will invite the Greens into government regardless of if they need them or not, as long as the Greens make Parliament. But New Zealand First also tried this, you know, national voters can't win, they should come to us because we're better than Labor Greens. Might have worked if Labor were at 43, 44%, but when Labor's at 48, 49%, Whether you vote national or act or New Zealand first doesn't really matter. The left has a clear majority. So part of the problem with tactical voting is that you have to convince enough people it's worth doing and is a legitimate way to vote. How does that happen? It really happens virally. Again, if you talk 96 Wellington Central, Epson with Rodney High, at an electorate level, it's not an organised campaign. It really is people talking to each other. And today, social media probably has a part to play too. In terms of party tactical voting, if it was to happen, it would probably be through social media. If you got some prominent former Labour MPs or party presidents a week before the election say, look, Labour's home and hosed, the Greens aren't certain, we will need them next time even if we don't need them this time, so I'm going to vote for them. That almost gives you permission. If you have someone who's held high office in a party say, well, this is what I'm doing, that can have, I think, quite an influential effect. Mm. Can I just circle back to something just so that I understand your position? So Winston famously says there shouldn't be polls in an election campaign. And you're saying I can see where he's coming from or are you saying you agree with him? Oh, I don't agree with him. A, you can't ban them. B, you shouldn't ban anything. I mean, actually, look, it'd be great for me if there were no public polls, the value of the private polls would be immensely more. But he does have a point that too much coverage is about the horse race, not about policies. If you actually look compared to 20 years ago, how much coverage polls got compared to how much the actual policies got, and in a COVID environment, policies are even less happening this time, I think. There is a factor, and he has a legitimate gripe around the polls with his party. Not that the polls are bogus or wrong, he likes using Donald Trump language, but they do tend to underestimate him by around 1%. That's, again, it's the opposite of the Greens. His voters are older, and around 95% of old people vote around 50 55% of, of very young people. But that's a known error that you can adjust for. But I can understand where he comes from because he's seen polls where they say they're only going to get 4.5%, they get 55 Having said that, this time they're polling at 1% in the latest poll. No amount of polling error is going to take you from 1% to 5%. Right. You're an election geek, you run numbers for for a living. Can you give us, just for the fun of it, your wildest scenario that could make a difference somewhere that is never going to happen? Here's the wild scenario. I might call it the nightmare scenario too. Billy TK wins <laughs> Titai Tokarau. They get two, two and a half percent party vote. So Billy TK and Jamie Lee Ross and God knows who number three is on their list come in and they hold the balance of power. And each side, of course, would say, well, we won't deal with them. They're lunatic conspiracy theorists. 
and that would hold for the first 48 hours and then they'd start negotiating. Advanced New Zealand may be the surprise result of the election, not saying they're going to get 5%. They should be a party that gets zero. They're a combination of four parties, the Conspiracy Theory Party, a pro-immigrant rights party, an anti-immigration party, and a party that wants to get rid of Parliament and replace it with a board of three people. I'm not making this up. That That's the Reset Party. And... But they had a 1,000 people at the campaign launch. They've raised $250,000 in cash. They're viral on Facebook and YouTube. And they could well be what I call the highest polling minnow party outside the big five who are already in parliament. You know, I won't be surprised on election night if they got, say, 2%, maybe even a bit more. They say such ridiculous stuff, you know, they're 5G, anti-vax, anti-1080, UN controls the world type stuff. And they are getting higher support from Māori. They've actually got a high number of candidates around the country. They've got one on, I think, every Māori seat. So, you know, no one's done a poll in Titai Tokarau. So could that be the surprise? No one's polls there. And Billy TK comes through and they hold the balance of power. Hey, look, um, as a pollster, we can't let you go without asking you to give us your best guess for the final numbers for the New Zealand election after it's all happened in mid-October? Look, I can't because I do the private polling for National do that because that's effectively publishing some of our numbers. But what I can do, because I've said this to a few other audiences, is perhaps give you some probabilities. What's the chance of National Act outpolling Labour? Well, in the last Colmar Brunton poll, they were only 6% behind Labour. So I reckon there's round a, somewhere between a one in five, one in seven chance National Act could actually do well enough in the next four weeks to outpoll Labour. Mm-hmm. Chance of New Zealand first not making it, probably around 90%. I think they're, they're almost dead in the water. And I think there's somewhere between a one in three, one in four chance the Greens don't make it. Now, for National Act to form government, you need all three of those things to happen. So if you multiply them together, you know, it's not huge. So, yeah, it's very likely it's a Labour-Green or a Labour-Majority government. Uh, but each of those three scenarios, National Act manages to just pip Labour, Greens don't make it, New Zealand First don't make it, and hopefully Advanced New Zealand don't hold the balance of power. Um, you might end up with a change of government, but it would be definitely uh, almost a Dewey versus Truman type um, publication the next day. David Farrah, thank you very much. Thank you. That was the Tick Tick Podcast. Mō te rāhuroi, whiringa anuku toru. I'm Adam Dunning, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to David Farrow, Luke McCallum, Jack Price, Catherine George, Patrick Cruz and John Hartfield and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. All of them. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email tick at stuff.co.nz. I don't actually know if it's all of them. But anyway, if you want to support Stuff Journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Ka kite a te wiki. Did you know we're actually on a podcast app called Deezer? No. Anyway, mate wa. 